Hello and welcome to Alice is Everywhere. My name is Heather and today we will be reading and discussing Chapter 8 of Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll entitled It's My Own Invention. That chapter title is in quotes, by the way, suggesting that someone is going to say it's my own invention. We are pretty much going to dive right in today because this chapter is long as heck and as you know, I like to keep Alice's Everywhere to a consistent 20 to 25 minutes. When we last left our hero, she had been hanging out with the White King, Hatta and Hare, made the acquaintance of the battling lion and unicorn, then was quite startled when a cacophony of drums started up. She leapt across a brook to get away from the noise, we know what that means, a bunch of dots in the text, and ta-da, she has advanced a square. By the way, when the story is through, we are going to get very detailed about the actual chess moves, and if this book really does work as a chess game. But right now, let's see who Alice meets in the next square. This individual that Alice meets in Chapter 8 is the source of much speculation. Have you noticed that in Looking Glass, we have come across far fewer characters that were inspired by real people in Lewis Carroll's and Alice Little's lives than in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland? In Wonderland, it seemed like almost every chapter I was telling you, oh, this character is Alice's sister... That character was maybe based on a guy in Lewis Carroll's hometown. Not so much in Looking Glass Land. But most people believe that changes with this chapter, It's My Own Invention. I want you to think, while I'm reading, who the real-life inspiration for this character might be. Hmm. Chapter 8, It's My Own Invention. After a while, the noise seemed gradually to die away, till all was dead silence, and Alice lifted up her head in some alarm. There was no one to be seen, and her first thought was that she must have been dreaming about the lion and the unicorn and those queer Anglo-Saxon messengers. However, there was the great dish still lying at her feet, on which she had tried to cut the plum cake. So I wasn't dreaming after all, she said to herself, unless, unless we're all part of the same dream. Only I do hope it's my dream and not the Red King's. I don't like belonging to another person's dream, she went on in a rather complaining tone. I have a great mind to go and wake him and see what happens. At this moment, her thoughts were interrupted by a loud shouting of, Ahoy! Ahoy, check! And a knight, dressed in crimson armor, came galloping down upon her, brandishing a great club. Just as he reached her, the horse stopped suddenly. You're my prisoner, the knight cried as he tumbled off his horse. Startled as she was, Alice was more frightened for him than for herself at the moment, and watched him with some anxiety as he mounted again. As soon as he was comfortably in the saddle, he began once more. You're my... But here another voice broke in. Ahoy, ahoy, check! And Alice looked round in some surprise for the new enemy. This time it was the white knight. He drew up at Alice's side and tumbled off his horse, just as the red knight had done. Then he got on again, and the two knights sat and looked at each other for some time without speaking. Alice looked from one to the other in some bewilderment. "'She's my prisoner, you know,' the Red Knight said at last. "'Yes, but then I came and rescued her,' the White Knight replied. "'Well, we must fight for her, then,' said the Red Knight as he took up his helmet, which hung from the saddle and was something the shape of a horse's head, and put it on. "'You will observe the rules of battle, of course,' the White Knight remarked, putting on his helmet, too. "'I always do,' said the Red Knight. And they began banging away at each other with such fury that Alice got behind a tree to be out of the way of the blows. I wonder now what the rules of battle are, she said to herself as she watched the fight, timidly peeping out from her hiding place. One rule seems to be that if one knight hits the other, 
he knocks him off his horse, and if he misses, he tumbles off himself. And another rule seems to be that they hold their clubs with their arms, as if they were Punch and Judy. What a noise they make when they tumble, just like a whole set of fire irons falling into the fender. And how quiet the horses are. They let them get on and off them just as if they were tables. Another rule of battle that Alice had not noticed seemed to be that they always fell on their heads, and the battle ended with their both falling off in this way side by side. When they got up again, they shook hands, and then the Red Knight mounted and galloped off. It was a glorious victory, wasn't it? said the White Knight as he came up panting. I don't know, Alice said doubtfully. I don't want to be anybody's prisoner. I want to be a queen. So you will when you've crossed the next brook, said the White Knight. I'll see you safe to the end of the wood, and then I must go back, you know. That's the end of my move. Well, thank you very much, said Alice. May I help you off with your helmet? It was evidently more than he could manage by himself. However, she managed to shake him out of it at last. No one can breathe more easily, said the knight, putting back his shaggy hair with both hands and turning his gentle face and large, mild eyes to Alice. She thought she had never seen such a strange-looking soldier in all her life. He was dressed in tin armor, which seemed to fit him very badly, and he had a queer-shaped little deal-box fastened across his shoulders upside down and with the lid hanging open. Alice looked at it with great curiosity. "'I see you're admiring my little box,' the knight said in a friendly tone. "'It's my own invention, to keep clothes and sandwiches in. You see, I carry it upside down so that the rain can't get in.' "'But the things can get out,' Alice gently remarked. "'Do you know the lid's open?' "'I didn't know it,' the knight said, a shade of vexation passing over his face. "'Then all the things must have fallen out, and the box is no use without them.' He, he unfastened it as he spoke, and was just going to throw it into the bushes when a sudden thought seemed to strike him, and he hung it carefully on a tree. "'Can you guess why I did that?' he said to Alice. Alice shook her head. "'In hopes that some bees may make a nest in it, then I should get the honey.' "'But you've got a beehive, or something like one, fastened to the saddle,' said Alice. "'Yes, it's a very good beehive,' the knight said in a discontented tone. "'One of the best kind, but not a single bee has come near it yet.' And the other thing is a mouse trap. I suppose the mice keep the bees out, or the bees keep the mice out. I don't know which. I was wondering what the mouse trap was for, said Alice. It isn't very likely there would be any mice on the horse's back. Not very likely, perhaps, said the knight, but if they do come, I don't choose to have them running all about. You see, he went on, after a pause, it's as well to be provided for everything. That's the reason the horse has all those anklets around his feet. But what are they for? Alice asked, in a tone of great curiosity. "'To guide against the bites of sharks,' the knight replied. "'It's an invention of my own. "'And now help me on. "'I'll go with you to the end of the wood. "'What's that dish for?' "'It's meant for plum cake,' said Alice. "'We'd better take it with us,' the knight said. "'It'll come in handy if we find any plum cake. "'Help me to get it into this bag.' "'This took a long time to manage, "'though Alice held the bag open very carefully, "'because the knight was so very awkward in putting in the dish. "'The first two or three times that he tried, "'he fell in himself instead.' "'It's a rather tight fit, you see,' he said as they got it in at last. "'There are so many candlesticks in the bag.' And he hung it to the saddle, which was already loaded with bunches of carrots and fire irons and many other things. "'I hope you've got your hair well fastened on,' he continued as they set off. "'Only in the usual way,' Alice said, smiling. "'That's hardly enough,' he said anxiously. "'You see, the wind is so very strong here. It's as strong as soup. "'Have you invented a plan for keeping the hair from being blown off?' Alice inquired. "'Not yet,' said the knight, "'but I've got a plan for keeping it from falling off. Well, "'I should like to hear it very much.' First, you take an upright stick,' said the knight. "'Then you make your hair creep up it like a fruit tree. "'Now the reason hair falls off is because it hangs down. "'Things never fall upwards, you know. "'It's a plan of my own invention. "'You may try it if you like.' 
It didn't sound a comfortable plan, Alice thought, and for a few minutes she walked on in silence, puzzling over the idea, and every now and then stopping to help the poor knight, who certainly was not a good rider. Whenever the horse stopped, which it did very often, he fell off in front, and whenever it went on again, which it generally did rather suddenly, he fell off behind. Otherwise he kept on pretty well, except that he had a habit of now and then falling off sideways, and as he generally did this on the side on which Alice was walking, she soon found that it was the best plan not to walk quite close to the horse. "'I'm afraid you've not had much practice in riding,' she ventured to say as she was helping him up from his fifth tumble. The knight looked very much surprised and a little offended at the remark. "'What makes you say that?' he asked as he scrambled back into the saddle, keeping hold of Alice's hair with one hand to save himself from falling over on the other side. "'Because people don't fall off quite so often when they've had much practice.' "'I've had plenty of practice,' the knight said very gravely. "'Plenty of practice.' Alice could think of nothing better to say than, "'Indeed?' But she said it as heartily as she could. They went on a little way in silence after this, the knight with his eyes shut, muttering to himself, and Alice watching anxiously for the next tumble. "'The great art of riding,' the knight suddenly began in a loud voice, waving his right arm as he spoke, "'is to keep—' Here the sentence ended as suddenly as it had begun, as the knight fell heavily on the top of his head, exactly in the path where Alice was walking. She was quite frightened this time, and said in an anxious tone as she picked him up, "'Oh, I hope no bones are broken?' "'None to speak of,' the knight said, as if he didn't mind breaking two or three of them. "'The great art of riding, as I was saying, is to keep your balance properly. Like this, you know.' He let go the bridle and stretched out both his arms to show Alice what he meant, and this time he fell flat on his back, right under the horse's feet. "'Plenty of practice,' he went on repeating, all the time that Alice was getting him on his feet again. "'Plenty of practice.' "'It's too ridiculous!' cried Alice, losing all her patience this time. "'You ought to have a wooden horse on wheels, that you ought.' "'Does that kind go smoothly?' the knight asked, in a tone of great interest, clasping his arms round the horse's neck as he spoke, just in time to save himself from tumbling off again. "'Much more smoothly than a live horse,' Alice said, with a little scream of laughter, in spite of all she could do to prevent it. "'I'll get one.' the knight said thoughtfully to himself one or two several there was a short silence after this and then the knight went on again i'm a great hand at inventing things now i dare say you noticed the last time you picked me up that i was looking rather thoughtful well, you were a little grave said alice well just then i was inventing a new way of getting over a gate would you like to hear it oh very much indeed alice said politely i'll tell you how i came to think of it said the knight you see i said to myself the only difficulty is with the feet the head is high enough already. Now first I put my head on the top of the gate, then the head's high enough. Then I stand on my head, then the feet are high enough, you see. Then I'm over, you see. Yes, I suppose you'd be over when that was done, Alice said thoughtfully. But don't you think it would be rather hard? I haven't tried it yet, the knight said gravely, so I can't tell for certain, but I'm afraid it would be a little hard. He looked so vexed at the idea that Alice changed the subject hastily. "'What a curious helmet you've got,' she said cheerfully. "'Is that your invention, too?' The knight looked down proudly at his helmet, which hung from the saddle. "'Yes,' he said, "'but I've invented a better one than that, like a sugar loaf. "'When I used to wear it, if I fell off the horse, it always touched the ground directly. "'So I had a very little way to fall, you see. "'But there was the danger of falling into it, to be sure. "'That happened to me once, and the worst of it was, before I could get out again, "'the other white knight came and put it on. "'He thought it was his own helmet.' The knight looked so solemn about it that Alice did not dare to laugh. "'I'm afraid you must have hurt him,' she said in a trembling voice, being on the top of his head. "'I had to kick him, of course,' the knight said very seriously. 
and then he took the helmet off again, but it took hours and hours to get me out. I was as fast as, as lightning, you know. But that's a different kind of fastness, Alice objected. The knight shook his head. It was all kinds of fastness with me, I can assure you, he said. He raised his hands in some excitement as he said this, then instantly rolled out of the saddle and fell headlong into a deep ditch. Alice ran to the side of the ditch to look for him. She was rather startled by the fall, as for some time he had kept on very well, and she was afraid that he really was hurt this time. However, though she could see nothing but the soles of his feet, she was much relieved to hear that he was talking on in his usual tone. All kinds of fastness, he repeated. But it was careless of him to put another man's helmet on, with the man in it, too. How can you go on talking so quietly, head downwards? Alice asked as she dragged him out by the feet and laid him in a heap on the bank. The knight looked surprised at the question. "'What well, doesn't matter where my body happens to be,' he said. "'My mind goes on working all the same. "'In fact, the more head downwards I am, the more I keep inventing new things. "'Now the cleverest thing of the sort that I ever did,' he went on after a pause, "'was inventing a new pudding during the meat course. "'In time to have it cooked for the next course?' said Alice. "'Well, that was quick work, certainly.' "'Well, not the next course,' the knight said in a slow, thoughtful tone. "'No, certainly not the next course.' Then it would have to be the next day. I suppose you wouldn't want to have two pudding courses in one dinner. Well, not the next day, the knight repeated as before. Not the next day. In fact, he went on, holding his head down and his voice getting lower and lower, I don't believe that pudding ever was cooked. In fact, I, I don't believe that pudding ever will be cooked. And yet it was a very clever pudding to invent. What did you mean it to be made of? Alice asked, hoping to cheer him up, for the poor knight seemed quite low-spirited about it. "'It began with blotting paper,' the knight answered with a groan. Well, "'That wouldn't be very nice, I'm afraid.' "'Not very nice alone,' he interrupted quite eagerly. "'But you've no idea what a difference it makes, "'mixing it with other things, such as gunpowder and sealing wax. "'And here I must leave you.' "'They had just come to the end of the wood. "'Alice could only look puzzled. "'She was thinking of the pudding. "'You are sad,' the knight said in an anxious tone. "'Let me sing you a song to comfort you.' "'Is it very long?' Alice asked, for she had heard quite a good deal of poetry that day. "'It's long,' said the knight, "'but it's very, very beautiful. "'Everybody that hears me sing it either brings the tears into their eyes or else—' "'Or else what?' said Alice, for the knight had made a sudden pause. "'Or else it doesn't, you know. "'The name of the song is called Haddock's Eyes.' "'Oh, that's the name of the song, is it?' Alice said, trying to feel interested. "'No, you don't understand,' the knight said, looking a little vexed. That's what the name is called. The name really is the aged, aged man. Then I ought to have said, that's what the song is called? Alice corrected herself. No, you oughtn't. That's quite another thing. The song is called Ways and Means. That's only what it's called, you know. Well, what is the song then? Said Alice, who was by this time completely bewildered. I was coming to that, the knight said. The song really is a sitting on a gate. And the tune's my own invention. So saying, he stopped his horse and let the reins fall on its neck, then slowly beating time with one hand, and with a faint smile lighting up his gentle, foolish face, as if he enjoyed the music of his song, he began. Of all the strange things that Alice saw in her journey through the looking-glass, this was the one that she always remembered most clearly. Years afterwards, she could bring the whole scene back again, as if it had been only yesterday. The mild blue eyes and kindly smile of the night, the setting sun gleaming through his hair and shining on his armor in a blaze of light that quite dazzled her, the horse quietly moving about with the reins hanging loose on his neck, cropping the grass at her feet, and the black shadows of the forest behind. 
All this she took in like a picture, as, with one hand shading her eyes, she leant against a tree, watching the strange pair and listening in a half-dream to the melancholy music of the song. But the tune isn't his own invention, she said to herself. It's I give thee all, I can no more. She stood and listened very attentively, but no tears came into her eyes. I'll tell thee everything I can. There's little to relate. I saw an aged, aged man a-sitting on a gate. Who are you, aged man? I said. And how is it you live? And his answer trickled through my head like water through a sieve. He said, I look for butterflies that sleep among the wheat. I make them into mutton pies and sell them in the street. I sell them unto men, he said, who stale on stormy seas. And that's the way I get my bread. A trifle, if you please. But I was thinking of a plan to dye one's whiskers green, and always huge so large a fan that they could not be seen. So having no reply to give to what the old man said, I cried, Come tell me how you live, and thumped him on the head. His accents mild took up the tale. He said, I go my ways, and when I find a mountain rill, I set it in a blaze. And thence they make a stuff they call Rowland's Macassar Oil. Yet two pence halfpenny is all they give me for my toil. But I was thinking of a way to feed oneself on batter, and so go on from day to day, getting a little fatter. I shook him well from side to side until his face was blue. "'Come tell me how you live,' I cried, "'and what it is you do.' He said, "'I hunt for haddock's eyes among the heather bright, and work them into waistcoat buttons in the silent night. And these I do not sell for gold or coin of silvery shine, but for a copper halfpenny, and that will purchase nine. I sometimes dig for buttered rolls, or set lime twigs for crabs. I sometimes search the grassy knolls for wheels of handsome cabs. And that's the way, he gave a wink, by which I get my wealth, and very gladly will I drink your honor's noble health. I heard him then, for I had just completed my design, to keep the men I bridge from rust by boiling it in wine. I thanked him much for telling me the way he got his wealth, but chiefly for his wish that he might drink my noble health. And now, if e'er by chance I put my fingers into glue, or madly squeeze a right-hand foot into a left-hand shoe, or if I drop upon my toe a very heavy weight, I weep, for it reminds me so of that old man I used to know, whose look was mild, whose speech was slow, whose hair was whiter than the snow, whose face was very like a crow, with eyes like cinders all aglow, who seemed distracted with his woe, who rocked his body to and fro, muttered mumblingly and low, as if his mouth were full of dough, who snorted like a buffalo that summer evening long ago, a-sitting on a gate. As the knight sang the last words of the ballad, he gathered up the reins and turned his horse's head along the road by which they had come. "'You've only a few yards to go,' he said, "'down the hill and over that little brook, and then you'll be a queen. "'But you'll stay and see me off first he added, as Alice turned with an eager look in the direction to which he pointed. "'I shan't be long. You'll wait and wave your handkerchief when I get to that turn in the road. I think it'll encourage me, you see.' "'Of course I'll wait,' said Alice, "'and thank you very much for coming so far, and for the song. I liked it very much.' "'I hope so,' the knight said doubtfully. "'But you didn't cry so much as I thought you would.' So they shook hands, and then the knight rode slowly away into the forest." "'It won't take long to see him off, I expect,' Alice said to herself as she stood watching him. "'There he goes, right on his head as usual. "'However, he gets on again pretty easily. "'That comes of having so many things hung round the horse. 
So she went on talking to herself as she watched the horse walking leisurely along the road and the knight tumbling off, first on one side and then on the other. After the fourth or fifth tumble, he reached the turn, and then she waved her handkerchief to him and waited till he was out of sight. I hope it encouraged him, she said, as she turned to run down the hill, and now for the last brook and to be a queen. How grand it sounds. A very few steps brought her to the edge of the brook. The eighth square at last, she cried as she bounded across and threw herself down to rest on a lawn as soft as moss, with little flower beds dotted about it here and there. Oh, how glad I am to get here! And what is this on my head? she exclaimed in a tone of dismay, as she put her hands up to something very heavy that fitted tight all round her head. But how can it have got there without me knowing it? she said to herself as she lifted it off and set it on her lap to make out what it could possibly be. It was a golden crown. Oh my gosh, it happened. Alice is a queen. In case you have any doubt, that's what the crown on her head means. The next chapter is entitled Queen Alice. If the chess game is over, shouldn't the book be over? What could possibly happen next? You'll have to wait until next time to find out. So after a brief interlude with the Red Knight, who is of course on the other team, most of this chapter deals with Alice traveling through the square with the White Knight. There aren't teams in chess, are there? Can you tell I don't really know how to play the game? I think, I think that might be obvious. So, were you thinking about who the White Knight could be in real life? What actual person could he be based on? If you thought, hmm, he sounds a bit like a certain author, mathematician, inventor, photographer, Oxford Don, I know, you are not alone. Most scholars believe that, yes, the White Knight is Lewis Carroll himself. In the course of my research, I have, of course, <laughs> of course, of course, used the annotated Alice by Martin Gardner because, despite a few questionable opinions, it is without a doubt the best companion to the Alice books. I say companion and not introduction because I think the best way to read the Alice books for the very first time is on your own so you can form your own opinions and ideas. But if you decide you like them and want to learn more about the author and the real-life people and events that inspired them, then you must check out The Annotated Alice. Of course, some of the things I've told you over the course of the last 20 episodes or so are included in The Annotated Alice. I use many other books and websites as well in my research, and every few months I take a trip downtown to the USC Doheny Library and spend the afternoon poring over their wonderful Cassidy collection, which was donated by some lovely folks I met through the Lewis Carroll Society of North America and is all books and essays and ephemera dealing with Lewis Carroll and his works. But I digress. Why do I bring up the annotated Alice now? Because for the very first time, I am going to quote it directly. I'm going to read an entire passage because I simply don't believe I could phrase these ideas any better than the esteemed Martin Gardner. And I quote, Many Carolian scholars have surmised, and with good reason, that Carol intended the white knight to be a caricature of himself. Like the knight, Carol had shaggy hair, mild blue eyes, a kind and gentle face. Like the knight, his mind seemed to function best when it saw things in topsy-turvy fashion. Like the knight, he was fond of curious gadgets and a great hand at inventing things. He was forever thinking of a way to do this or that a bit differently. Many of his inventions, like the knight's blotting paper pudding, were very clever but unlikely ever to be made, though some turned out to be not so useless when others reinvented them decades later. Gardner goes on to describe some of Carroll's ideas for inventions and actual inventions, which we'll get into at another time. 
He then continues, It is noteworthy also that, of all the characters Alice meets on her two dream adventures, only the White Knight seems to be genuinely fond of her and to offer her special assistance. He is almost alone in speaking to her with respect and courtesy, and we are told that Alice remembered him better than anyone else whom she met behind the mirror. His melancholy farewell may be Carol's farewell to Alice when she grew up, became a queen, and abandoned him. At any rate, we hear loudest in this sunset episode, that shadow of a sigh that Carol tells us in his prefatory poem will tremble through the story. End quote. And then Gardner rather randomly tells us that Gary Cooper played the White Knight in the 1933 Alice in Wonderland movie. Hmm. Now, this seems pretty clear. It seems like a very good theory, but one I thought there was no actual proof for. You'll recall that in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, scholars assumed that Lewis Carroll was the dodo, and it turned out they were right, as he wrote a letter, or maybe inscribed a book, I don't remember which, to his friend, the Reverend Duckworth, and wrote, to the duck from the dodo. So there, Eureka, was a moment of proof. Charles Dodson is the dodo. I did not think anything like that existed to prove that Carol was the white knight, until I did a little last-minute research for this very episode of our podcast. Apparently, Lewis Carroll made a game board for one of his child friends. Again, he's always inventing things, so he made her a game board. And he wrote on it, Olive Butler, that's the name of the girl, Olive Butler, from the White Knight, November 21st, 1892. Now, I say apparently because a lot of revelatory discoveries about Lewis Carroll seem to have made, been made in the later part of the 20th century. And that's just strange to me, that the discoveries just keep coming. Carroll's like the Victorian Tupac. In this instance, the, the person to break the White Knight news was an author named Jeffrey Stern. Stern wrote about it in the Jabberwocky, which is the newsletter of the Lewis Carroll Society. That's the original Lewis Carroll Society in England, not the North American one. He wrote about it in 1990. I'm a little unclear as to whether he discovered the game board or if he just broke the news. The back issue is available, but it's $20, not including shipping, so I need to decide how much this White Knight quest means to me. Now, Jeffrey Stern is a respectable fellow. He has written many books on Lewis Carroll. I don't mean to single him out with suspicion or anything like that, but it just seems like every few years someone says, oh, hey, look what I found in regard to our friend, LC. And again, I just find it oddly fortuitous, particularly when that person's writing a book. Back to the White Knight's identity. Many folks have pointed out over the years that the White Knight has a lot in common with Don Quixote. Fair enough. Others have pointed out that the White Knight is illustrated by Jen John Tenniel with a big handlebar mustache, which Carol did not have in real life. In fact, Tenniel had a big handlebar mustache, go figure. But I don't think the original illustrations, which you can, of course, see on the accompanying blog post for this episode on aliceseverywhere.com, should really carry much weight in terms of who is who in real life. As we have discussed, the illustrations of Alice don't look anything like the real-life Alice, Alice Little. One more funny note, perhaps with a little vanity, Lewis Carroll instructed Tenniel that the White Knight must not look too old. And of course, in the illustrations, he, he looks about 90. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you've got any comments or questions about the Alice is Everywhere podcast or website, feel free to shoot me an email at heather at aliceseverywhere.com or use the contact form on the website, or say hi on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, what have you. If I don't see you online, talk soon.